Hola. Welcome to my Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. Thanks for tuning in. When I sit down each week to put together my podcast, I'm reminded of the reason I walked the Camino de Santiago back in 2016. I wanted to leave the first 50 years of my life behind me to start afresh. There's no point worrying about the past and let's face it, the future will take care of itself. We can only really manage this moment and it's a lot easier said than done. In all my podcasts so far, there have been varied motivations, pilgrims seeking solitude, others seeking to find themselves, others to lose themselves, and pilgrims seeking to challenge themselves. So my guest this week walked the Camino with his son. They formed a bond for life. That might sound crazy for a father and son. Sanjeeva Vijay Singer grew up in Sri Lanka, where he graduated from the Colombo University Medical School and then completed a research degree at Oxford. He later moved to Australia and is now a Melbourne GP. He wrote an account of his Camino alongside his son Shivanta, called Strangers on the Camino, a Father, a Son and a Holy Trail. He's on the line. Sanjeeva, welcome. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. We'll get to your book down the track, but I wanted to start where you started your pilgrimage, and it was really when your son Shivanta bought you a copy of Paolo Coelho's The Pilgrim for your birthday, and it changed both of your lives forever. That's right. Looking back now, I think that's what initiated our desire to go on this pilgrimage, but at the time I read it, it just sowed a seed. There is this pilgrim trail in the north of Spain. And then I read a little bit more about it. And uh, Shivanta and I, we said, uh, talked to each other and said, you know, someday we should walk this trail. And it was one of those things that was going to be someday, way, way ahead in the future. And uh, occasionally we'd say, hey, maybe you should do it next year. And suddenly in 2010, Shivanta had just finished his uh, university. He was in America at the time at the American Academy of Dramatic Art. And uh, I was in Melbourne, and uh, I said, uh, you know, Shivanta, let's do it next year, because if you don't do it now, if you don't seize the day, I'll be getting too old to walk, and you'll start working, and you won't be able to get time off. So let's plan and make a definite date. And so we decided, (coughs) sorry, April 2011, that we would do it. And uh, from the time we made a firm decision to undertake the pilgrimage in April, I started preparing, walking long and longer distances, walking with a pack on my back, reading as much as I could about the pilgrimage. I remember two good books that I read. One was by a Swiss lady living in Perth, Teresa Burkhart Fuller. And the other was by a Canadian Guy Thatcher. Uh, His book was called A Journey of Days. And having read and prepared, Finally, on the 13th of April, 2011, I took off and we had planned to meet in Paris. Shivanta would come from New York and uh, I, I would uh, go from Melbourne. And I remember telling him about a week before, I said, Shivanta, now I am arriving on UL flight uh, 563, I think it was. And I'll get to Paris and uh, I booked a hotel and I'll be arriving at uh, 14, at, uh, sorry, at 0730. I said, what flight are you coming on? And he said, Atati, I'm going to book it today. <laughs> Which I think uh, <laughs> explains <laughs> the difference between the two generations. I would plan six months in advance and Shivanta would do it on the spur of the moment. But 
it all works. He arrived as he had planned to. And we met in Paris, stayed the night over in this um, hotel, which was close to the airport, and then took the train down to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port and started our journey. And which route did you take? <clears throat> we took the route uh, from Saint-Jean, the route Napoleon, right. over the Pyrenees. Uh, stayed the night in Orison, which was a great place to stay because um, there were so you know going on the train, the little train that takes you from uh, uh, Bayonne to Saint Jean. We saw people with sculptures on their backpacks, and then we said, "Hey, there are other people going on this pilgrimage." Yeah. And uh, then when we got to Orison, the dinner at the Alberg, uh, there's a girl called Panchika who serves people. And that the, when we all sat down, she said, now, I am Panchika, and this is uh, Jean-Jacques, who is the cooker, and now you must all introduce yourselves. So we all got up, and uh, in the various languages that we knew, we uh, introduced ourselves. And that was a good icebreaker, because along the Camino, you meet the same people you met in Orison, and... Uh, it was nice. I, I was sitting next to a French lady, and in the few words of French I knew and the few words of English I knew, we made labored conversation. And uh, then as soon as dinner was over, she excused herself. I think she had got tired of trying to talk to me. And then I turned to the lady who was seated on the, um, across the vacant seat, and uh, slowly and as enunciating my words very carefully and clearly, I said... Uh, May I speak to you in English? <laughs> and she looked at me and said with a broad Queensland accent, please do, I don't speak anything else. <laughs> and so we met this lady from um, Queensland, Brisbane, and she and her daughter and uh, the other boy who was talking to my friend, he was a boy from uh, uh, Paris. We became good friends and we met often on the Camino, often stayed in the same albergue, albergues. And um, the friendships that we made uh, have uh, lasted long after we finished the Camino. So that was nice. That's a, such a common story of people meeting yeah. and, and running into one another. And it's, it's, it's like running into an old friend, even though you've only known them for a couple of days. It's such a lovely surprise often when you walk through a town, you hear, Dan, or Shivanta, you're like, hey. It's so great. It's, it's lovely, isn't it? Can I just ask you a little bit of uh, nuts and bolts? How much did you carry? How much weight was in your backpack? Do you remember? Like most pilgrims, we carried more when we started out than we had when we finished. And um, I, I had read that you should carry no more than 10% of your body weight. But there were a few things that I jettisoned or rather posted back to Melbourne um, in the town called Estella. I think the post office there is used to people coming and posting back home things that they realize they no longer need. And uh, Shivanta, he'd even brought a book to read and um, he brought his laptop. And I said, Shivanta, what do you want your laptop on this pilgrimage for? He said, no, no, I can keep in touch with mom back home. I think the real reason was he wanted to keep in touch with his girlfriend, but that's another story. <laughs> and uh, so he did carry the backpack, but the book was posted back to New York. So um, we, I, I guess that's something you learn in the Camino. We often carry more baggage in the Camino as in life than we need. And then you realize what are the essentials that you need and what can you jettison or send back or give away. 
Yeah, and, and I think so, that, that great, um, it's a great feeling, isn't it? Unburdening, in a sense, and leaving all of those possessions behind, those worldly possessions that you don't really need. That's right. I think unburdening is the correct word, Dan. Yeah. On the Camino, you learn to unburden yourself. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to get to that. Uh, and you said you read a couple of books and, and you did a bit of training. How how much training did you do? Were you really prepared when you arrived at St. John? Yes, I, I was very prepared because um, from about January, I, I generally try to keep fit, go to the gym and walk fairly regularly. But uh, from January onwards, at least three days a week, I did a walk of at least one hour, closer to two. And uh, in March, I did a few walks of, say, four hours. There's a nice walking trail near where we live in Melbourne. And uh, a few days, I walked two hours in one direction, two hours back uh, with a pack on. And also, I got myself a new pair of boots. And um, from about February, I started wearing the new pair of boots. So I developed my blisters with the new boots before I actually went to France. Yeah, it's such a good idea. That's a great idea. And I wonder then, were you a spiritual person? or Because my next question is, had you heard of the Camino's spiritual presence before you left? The question after that is, how did it reveal itself to you? But let me take a step back. Were, were you or are you generally a spiritual person? I think you worded that question beautifully. A spiritual person, not a religious person. Because I grew up in Sri Lanka. And um, Sri Lanka is a very... Um, uh, well, okay. Sri Lanka has people of various different religions. About 80% of the population are, is Buddhist. About 10% are Hindus and 5% each of Christians and Muslims. So when you grow up in Sri Lanka, you have your next door neighbor is either Muslim or Hindu. And uh, one of the great advantages of that, of course, is that you learn to celebrate all, all the festivals of all these religions. <laughs> and we know which house made the best Christmas cake and which house had the best biryani for uh, Ramazan. <laughs> and I was lucky in that I had two grandmothers, one of whom was a devout Christian and one of whom was a devout Buddhist. And from the two sides of my family, I learned a lot about Christianity and about Buddhism. And maybe from the neighbors, and because I was an avid reader, I learned about Islam and Hinduism. And so, as I got older, I think I developed a great respect for these world's religions, but a healthy cynicism of those, uh, I call them the purveyors of organized religion who set the one group of people against another. And so I am not a church or temple goer. Let's put it that way. But yeah. I think I'm very spiritual. And um, so is my wife. And um, so there was a deeper meaning in this community because you realize that for the last few thousand years, there have been um, pilgrims walking this trail. In fact, Shirley MacLaine in her book talks about the meridians of the world that even before Christianity came to uh, Spain, this was a trail that devout people walked along to get to some destination. So I knew about the spiritual dimension of the uh, pilgrimage. And uh, just another story, I was walking with uh, uh, another pilgrim who described himself as a devout atheist. Right. And then we were, I thought that was great. Uh, yeah. 
uh, choice of words. And uh, we were passing through a very beautiful wood. There's a lake on one side, and you could hear the birds singing. And I said, you know, isn't it uh, beautiful? And he said, yes, you know, you do not have to believe in a creator to appreciate the works of creation. I thought, right, that's a great phrase. That's beautiful. <coughs> I, I remember that, and I just looked at him and said, that is a beautiful saying. Wow, that's fantastic. So you'd, you'd heard of the Camino's spiritual presence. How did it reveal itself mm. to you? Do you remember? I remember walking um, in Buddha. Buddhism, there's a thing called walking meditation. You know, you always, often people see statues of the Buddha seated in meditation, but there's a kind of walking meditation where just putting one foot in front of the other mindfully, it uh, calms your mind, it uh, focuses your mind. And I think when you walk the Camino, it comes to a stage where you're putting one foot in front of the other, just walking, walking, rhythmically walking. And that can also calm your mind. You can appreciate what is around you. That's one sense of the um, spiritual benefit of walking the Camino. You know, the other thing is when you walk, you come to a few churches. Like there's a lovely little church in a place called Eunate, a small Templar church. And when you walk in there and you sit in those pews, you can feel the presence of something greater than you. Um, sometimes I feel going into the large cathedrals, Leon was beautiful with its uh, stained glass windows. But some of these cathedrals, you have pictures of uh, uh, saints being martyred and uh, people sticking spears into other people and the, the horrors of hell. And you think, wait a minute, that's not really what uh, I'm interested in. But some of the smaller churches, you can sense the presence of, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, something greater than you. Yeah. You can feel the universe. I don't think that uh, I conveyed as much as I felt in those words. But yes. you feel something greater. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And, and so in revealing itself to you, there's this spirituality, a, a certain presence, and as you say, a, a, a great wonderment at, at what you're doing. It's almost trance-like, this one foot in front of, front of the other. That's right. And your relationship with Shivantha began to change. Change in the sense that we got a chance to talk about things that we didn't, uh, we hadn't had time to talk about when we were father and son. As um, he, he said, uh, we started this journey as father and son. And he even uh, said when he made the speech at the launch of my book, he said, uh, my father was a military trained medical man and he ran his life with uh, precision, military precision. And then he added, he even ran, ran my life with military precision. But, <laughs> It's, it's like the difference between us. No, when I was going to um, France, I had already booked my ticket, planned where I was staying down to the nearest uh, minute. And Shivanta runs his life in a different way. But he said, I saw my father beginning to unwind, to relax, to take things a little easier. And uh, that, that, that was true. The, the, a, a pilgrim, yeah. a pilgrim. Is, a, is not just something, well, a pilgrimage is something you, you do, but being a pilgrim is very much a state of mind, isn't it? I, I, I saw pilgrims, in adverted commas, on the Camino and thought, oh, you, you really don't get it. Um, and I suppose it's, it's really that, that's what I'm saying, it's, it's a piece of, a, 
a place in the mind, mind. a frame of mind. Yeah. Um, And, and language was something that drew you together too, wasn't it? You spoke a little Spanish. Shivantha spoke some Italian and French. I spoke a little Spanish. Shivantha spoke fluent Italian and French. Right. And that was helpful uh, um, because we, we met a man from uh, Lyon, Lyon, France. And uh, he was walking to Santiago with his uh, donkey. And he and Shivantha stuck up a friendship because they spoke in French. And... Uh, then we met a group of uh, Italian pilgrims and they were having a meal and uh, they said, as one would say, Buen Camino to us. And Shivan said, Buen Camino, and then rattled off in Italian. How are you getting on? Is the meal good? And I think I saw a collective jaw dropping from those people to see this very non-Italian boy speaking Italian. And uh, so the fact that he could speak those languages uh, also helped us to meet and uh, interact with people we otherwise wouldn't have met. So that was good. And did you walk easily? So was the physical side of the way manageable, Sanjeeva? The physical side, at first I thought when we were going, uh, we had to cross the Pyrenees and uh, I told Shivanta, Shivanta, I may not be able to make this uh, easily, so let's walk slowly. He said, no problem, Tati, you walk. And uh, again, I learned the I learned some Camino lessons and one is that you can take any journey as long as you take it slowly step by step you can complete the journey so we walked slowly over the Pyrenees and uh, then there's another st- another stage where there was a fairly steep hill and we were walking together and uh, Shivanta walked on ahead because I was taking it very slowly so then he turned around and he said Tati Give me your pack. I'll take your pack. And straight away, I said, nah, Shivanta, I can manage. Don't worry. So he said, okay. And he walked on ahead. And after another 10 or 15 minutes, he waited for me. And as I came, he said, Tati, I'll take your pack because the going is tough for you. By now, my refusal was a little less um, reluctant. <laughs> and uh, I said, nah, Shivanta, you can't take two packs. Man, I'll, I'll manage. Don't worry. He looked at me and he said, okay. And he walked on. And the third time, when he was waiting for me and I walked up, he didn't ask. He just said, Tati, give me a pack. And he took my pack and put it in front of him and had his swag behind it. There was me happily walking with the two sticks with no pack. And uh, we passed a German pilgrim who, who must have weighed 130 kilos if he weighed a single gram. Oh. And he looked rather enviously at me and said, oh, you have a good friend. He carries your pack. I said, nah, he's not my friend. He's my son. Implying that, you know, it's his son's duty to carry the father's pack. <laughs> and then he looked at me and said, you have a good friend for a son. And I think that also summed up what uh, we realized on the Camino, that um, I told Shivanta, I said, you know, son, if you're not my son, you're the sort of fellow I'd have uh, uh, been very proud to call my friend, to be friends with. And you realize on this Camino that, uh, especially with the two of us, that uh, despite the difference in our ages, despite the fact that we disagree on some things, there's a lot that we think alike about and a strong bond of affection. And something else then that um, I think as men, we tend to not express emotion. Maybe the younger generation is better, but uh, in my era, which was in the last century, Men just set a stiff upper lip and didn't uh, didn't express emotions. 
And when we finished the Camino, we got to the plaza in front of the cathedral. And Shivanda looked at me and I looked at him and sort of, we made it kind of look. And then he hugged me and he said, Tati, I have never told you this before, but I love you very much. Oh. And that that was something that he never told me. I never told him. I couldn't respond. There were just tears in my eyes. But uh, that was something that I will treasure as a memory of that Camino. That's fantastic. That is just so fantastic. What a great story. <laughs> you you say, I want to get back to that. I'll get back to that in a little while. But yeah. You say in the book that you developed a great love and admiration for the architecture on the Camino. It's lovely you yes. say some of the people dedicated their lives to building works of art. And you say, and I'll quote you, can you imagine spending your entire life building something you know you might never see completed in your own lifetime? That's yes. enormous. Mm. Isn't that a, that's an enormous thought, isn't it? An, an enormous concept. And you, I guess the masons, the craftsmen, the artists, the sculptors, they were doing this because of this great love of doing something for their God. And uh, realizing that, you know, I'm part of a greater whole. Yes. I'm doing this. I may not see this, but my children and my children's children will be able to see it. And do you see this amazing uh, cathedral in Burgos, uh, the cathedral in Lyon? Even the uh, uh, huge monastery in Samos, those are amazing places. Yes. Yes, Samos. I stayed downstairs at Samos. It was magnificent. Yes, yes. It, it's, I suppose, wonderful to think of our short time on earth as part of a much longer pilgrimage and, and a human Camino, isn't it? That's right. Our path on earth is part of a greater journey. And we're all pilgrims in life. Yes, yes, that's true. You say you began the Camino as strangers in many ways, but arrived in Santiago as father and son. Is there one thing you could point your finger at to identify that brought you together? What would it be? What would it be when you thought, oh, that was the light bulb moment? Don't think there was really a light bulb moment, but uh, a few separate incidents, like uh, we were seated one day uh, by the side of a uh, canal, I think it was, uh, Villa Franca del Bierzo, that was the place, uh-huh. and we were having an evening meal of tinned uh, scallops and tinned zamburinis and tinned something else, and a bottle of wine shared between the two of us, and just looking at the, just watching the sunset. And Shivanta turned to me and said, you know, Tati, I can't imagine any of my friend's fathers or my, my father's friends who would have taken time off to do this with their sons. Because uh, the kind of life I lead, I do three jobs, really. Um, work as a GP in Melbourne. I teach at Monash University as a professor there. And also I spend uh, time with the Army Reserve. So taking six weeks off to go as one of my my friend said tramping around Spain is not something that is sensible. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, looking back, I think that was one of the greatest decisions I made because I took him off. As Shivan said, I learned to relax. I spent time with him. And I think he appreciated that, that I was taking this time off to go with him. Um, and uh, so that was uh, important. Yes. The time when he took my pack and uh, there's that uh, German pilgrim said, you have a good friend for a son. Yes. Okay. Yes. Suddenly realized that's true. And you say... Uh, the time that... Uh, yes, sorry. 
Sorry, Jen, I interrupted. No, no, not at all. I was about to say that you say in the book that you were delighted to learn you and your son shared many of the same values that you cherish. And did you perhaps then notice in yourself values you'd learned from your father? Yes, yes, that is true. We often, uh, when we, even now when we talk, we say, Sia, Sia is the word for grandfather. And um, that's exactly what Sia would say. Uh, we used to laugh and say that uh, the I look like my father and my son looks like me, but uh, we the Vijay singers improve with each generation because each son gets a little of the good looks of the mother. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my wife always says Shivanda looks better than I do. But uh, uh, there are certain features like the well, the shape of the Vijay singer nose is characteristic. And um, I remember saying, Shivanti, you know, it's not just the shape of uh, the nose that you have integrated from me, but also some of the ideas and the reactions to certain situations. Like we were walking some um, some place, and I'd say something, and uh, he'd say, Tati, that's exactly what I was thinking. So you realize that maybe it's nurture, maybe it's nature, probably nurture, because you imbibe the ideas, the values of your parents. Sometimes you might disagree, but still the basic um, uh, perceptions that you have, the basic understandings, very similar. Yes. And you have a Sri Lankan heritage, very proud and distinguished heritage. Do you think, oh, yeah. do you think all fathers across the globe are trying to teach similar values? I think a lot of fathers would... No, let's uh, reword that. I think many fathers try to uh, imagine their sons walking their footsteps, not making the same mistakes they made. But uh, some fathers try to turn their sons or think they can turn their sons into carbon copies of themselves. Some fathers try to live their, uh, their dreams, which they couldn't achieve through their sons. And uh, that's probably not a good thing. Letting your children achieve their dreams. Now, Shivanta trained as a lawyer and I remember he came to me one day in the fourth year of law school I think and said Tati I want to quit law so I said why by this time he'd done some acting in Melbourne he'd appeared in a few TV series got paid $500 a role <clears throat> and so he was enjoying his work as an actor and also getting paid for it and I said why do you want to quit law he said no I want to continue and be an actor so now me conservative Sri Lankan father or conservative father said, you know, if you become an actor, you'll probably be between jobs. So why don't you finish your law degree? And after that, mom and I will find the money to pay for you to go to a decent acting school. And then you pursue your career as an actor with the law degree in the background. I said, you think about it and uh, tell me your decision tomorrow or a couple of days. And to give him his due in a couple of days, he he came and said, Tati, I thought about what you said. I'll finish the law degree. I said, fine. And we'll keep our side of the bargain. So he finished his law degree, got called to the bar. And then he went off to America on a holiday. And we get this email. Uh, My dear Tati, I have auditioned for the American Academy of Dramatic Art. And you have accepted me. Love, Shivanta. So I wrote back, Shivanta, one, congratulations. Very proud of you. Two, how much is this going to cost us? <laughs> and so he did his three years there, got his uh, degree, and now he's working in New York as a musician and an actor. 
Oh, you must be so proud. Proud of the rascal, that's true. Proud as a rascal. And happy that he's <laughs> happy that he's uh, fulfilled his, uh, shall we say, obligation to his parents by completing his academic qualifications, but also proud and happy that he's uh, fulfilling his dream of being an actor. That's he's right. He's in a movie next month. He's going to be in a movie. It's called The Flight of Columbus. And he's got the lead role in it. It's a, a short film. But he's uh, playing the role of a spaceman. And it's a lovely story. He sent me the script. And, and it's nice because he's going to be a spaceman. And also, um, as I said, most of the spacemen that I've seen from John Glenn to Yuri Gagarin are white people. He has a little brown spaceman with a space suit who's going to play the lead role in the movie, Changing World. <laughs> you're, a, you're a GP these days, a, a doctor. Did yes. you use your medical skills on the Camino? Yes, that it was helpful because uh, we met a um, boy called Fadi from uh, uh, France. And uh, in fact, there's a story behind Fadi and uh, Shivanta. We were seated in Hunto. Did you walk uh, through Hunto to Horizon, uh, Dan? No, Did I didn't. I started in Sahun, exactly halfway. Okay. Uh, the From Saint-Jean, you walk about three kilometers uphill and you come to this little place called Hunto. Uh, and um, there's a place where you can stay, but we stopped there for a coffee. Shivanta, me and a, a Danish nurse called Hella. And uh, we were just sitting, having the coffee and uh, chatting. And suddenly we saw this man walking downwards. Not walking towards Santiago, but walking away from Santiago towards St. John. And Hella, I think with the centurion voice she uses to shout at her patient, said, Hey, you're walking in the wrong way. <laughs> And he looked rather sheepishly at us. And uh, Shivanta said, hey, come and join us. So he came and Fadi said he had started walking, but he found the journey too much for him and he was going back to Paris. So Shivanta said, look, if you like, join us, let's go. And the two of them started talking. They were uh, same age, similar uh, interests they found. And they got chatting and Fadi continued the journey. Later on, he said, you know, I would have gone back and given up if not for the fact that I met Shivanta and we still maintain the friendship with Fadi. And about um, five days into the journey, Fadi was Fadi had a crook back. And so luckily I was able to examine him and we got some stuff from the pharmacy for him and, and help him that way. And the occasional uh, blister I was able to help. And uh, it, it was good. Did you... Did you make it to the end okay yourself? You and Shavanta, were you okay? Was there any physical problems? Yes. Knees, back, we hips, okay. feet? I, no, because I think, as Shivanta said, Tati, you trained before you came. I mean, I'm double his age. But um, thanks, to the, thanks to the years in the Sri Lankan and the Australian Army, I think I've learned to keep myself fit. But also, having trained, my blisters appeared in Melbourne and healed before I went to uh, Spain. Uh, that was one. Then you learned. I got my backpack from, from the army surplus store, so I knew how it was made. Australian army backpacks and boots are very good, so I went to the army surplus store and got genuine Australian army boots and uh, uh, backpacks. And uh, so I learned to, at least I knew how to pack it so that the backpack sat correctly without straining my back. Uh, Shivanta had a day in um, Ventosa when... Uh, he had uh, his uh, foot was his ankle was giving trouble, so we rested that day 
In fact, we took taxi from Ventosa to Nahera. But apart from that, uh, no major problems. So you mentioned there earlier about your military role, and I spoke last week with Will Bogue, a Parkinson's hero, and the week before that to Mick McQueen, who's about to walk the Camino carrying the legacy of war heroes. Both Will and Mick are ex-military. You have a military history too, don't you, that that you mentioned about earlier. How significant is that in your life? Could I ask you that? Oh, certainly. And I, I was very interested because I, in fact, after I heard the podcast with Mick McQueen, I sent him a friend request on Facebook and, uh, you know, Facebook friends, we've uh, talked to each other through Facebook messages. He's, uh, we've got a mutual friend in Perth, a military person, Brad, who you interviewed a few weeks ago, the American uh, veteran. Yes. Uh, he, I've uh, again communicated with, he's doing a great service by taking veterans who suffer from post-traumatic stress on the Camino. I think that will be a a very useful thing, a very therapeutic for them. Uh, I served in the Sri Lankan army for 11 years, and that was when we had a war going on in Sri Lanka. And then I came out of Australia and served in the Australian army. I've actually served longer in the Australian army than I have in the Sri Lankan army. Yeah. And I'm going to march on Anzac Day, which is in two days' time. I think um, for for um, your listeners who are not in Australia, Anzac Day is like Remembrance Day, where you remember the service of Australian servicemen in the wars. So I'll be marching on Anzac Day and I have my Australian medals on my left side, but I wear my Sri Lankan medals on my right side to remember my uh, days in the Sri Lankan army. It uh, was, uh, joining the army was good. I served in the army reserve. Again, my dad one day, I was in medical school and <clears throat> he came home one evening and said, yes, son, I brought uh, an application form to join the army reserve. You fill it up and I'll drop it off at army headquarters on my way to work tomorrow. And I said, I don't want to join the army. And he said, sit down. As I years later told Shivanda, sit down, let's talk about your decision to give up law. He said, you know, son, if you join the army, three things will happen. One is you learn things you'll never learn in medical school. Two, you'll meet people who you wouldn't meet in a normal life. As doctors or medical students, you'll meet patients, physiotherapists, nurses, other doctors. And that limits your circle of friends and acquaintances. He said, you join the army, you meet people from all walks of life. And that will widen your circle of friends. And some of those people will be your greatest friends for the rest of your life. And he said, thirdly, you'll get tremendous confidence in yourself when you undergo the training and serve in the military. So like Shivanta, I said, let me think about it. And the next day, I said, okay, fill it up. And my dad died when he was 94. Uh, three years ago. And on his 90th birthday, I was in Sri Lanka and I said, <clears throat> I was going to meet some of my old army buddies in Sri Lanka. And then before I left home that evening, I said, you know, Tata, when I was going to join the army, he told me that uh, by joining the army, I'll benefit in three ways. He said, yes, I remember. <laughs> I said, you learn. And he, exactly his words, he said. And I said, you know, everything you said is true. He said, I knew, I knew. That's why I got you to join. (laughs) But (laughs) it was true. And also it made me physically fit to join the Camino. Taught me how to prepare, which is good. And uh, coming back to this uh, mix idea of, uh, sorry, Brad's idea of taking um, 
the veterans on the Camino, I always say having been in the military, that was uh, designed by old men and politicians. And it's the young people who go and fight and suffer. And I've seen too many soldiers in Sri Lanka, in Australia have gone, given their best for the country and come back broken in mind and spirit. And trying to heal them as Brad is trying to do is good. What Mick is doing is great because he's taking, um, uh, when I was listening to your, his podcast, he's taking uh, uh, memories or the mementos of 41 boys who've died uh, in Afghanistan. And I wrote him and said, uh, Mick, we took 42 days for our Camino. So you'll have one day to remember each of them. That is good. When the war is over, when the fighting is over, we, the general public forgets about these fellows who have put their lives on the line and gone. And uh, so I think what he's doing is uh, important. And uh, I said, I wish you well. I'll be following our journey on Facebook, Mick. That's fantastic. Oh, how lovely that the podcast has weaved a thread through all of our lives now. That's I'm really proud of that. I'm really excited about it too. <laughs> now you're... It's, it's interesting that you're interviewing um, in this month of April, uh, March, April, you're interviewing so many uh, soldiers and ex-soldiers. Brad, Mick, and um, the, I haven't listened yet to the Will. Uh, one last week, Will. Will Bogue, yeah, the, he's the Parkinson's. Parkinson's. Yeah, 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 he's fantastic. You'll love it, you'll love it. So you're an accomplished writer. You've written a number of books. But this, uh, 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 Strangers on the Camino, A Father, A Son, and A Holy Trail, is your first travel book. Did it come easily to you? Um, easily in this sense, because the... Previous books that I've written, one was a, a book called Friends. Uh, that I used to write a column for the Sri Lankan papers, and uh, I put together about 50 of those columns, which were about you know little anecdotes, stories, observations about life in Sri Lanka, and um, that had some success in Sri Lanka. And then I'd written short stories, so I put together a collection of short stories. And uh, then I thought, right, I'm going on the Camino. Let me write about my experiences. Fortunately, uh, I kept a, a journal on the Camino. And uh, that provided the material when I came back with a fair bit of background reading to, to write the story. And I thought it's worthwhile because on the Camino, most of the people on the Camino uh, were Europeans. Most of them were Christians, and um, I think Shivant and I, because we were the uh, few, or we were probably the only non-Caucasians in many of the albergs we stayed in. That's why a lot of people recognize us. I remember when you got to Santiago, there this French uh, Canadian uh, man Marcel, and he was uh, in the plaza. And after we came, and he saw us, ah, the father and son have arrived. Uh-huh. So the book I wrote, I wrote the book that said "Strangers in the Camino" because. In one sense, we were strangers to Spain. Um, in another sense, strangers to the myths and legends of the Catholic Church. And uh, also, I said, strangers to each other. So, for the cover of our book, again, coming back to this idea that we were not the usual pilgrims on the Camino, in the monastery at Samos, there was a, there were lovely paintings, modern paintings. There was, a, I don't know if you remember, there was a painting of some nuns, one of whom distinctly looked like Sophia Loren, as if she'd modeled for that uh, 
painting and there's a picture of some cherubs and uh, most of the cherubs I've seen in paintings have been white cherubs but here there were three white cherubs and there's a little black cherub with his arms outstretched and he said hey Shivanta you saw that he looked and he said Tati there's probably heaven place in heaven for people like us also no <laughs> and he started laughing <laughs> So that will be great for a cover picture. And that's the picture that I put on the book Strangers on the Camino. That's fantastic. <laughs> so you, 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 you've written the book and you came home with the journal. But how do you put into words the Camino when you're trying to explain its magic to people who haven't walked it? How do you do that? Because I find it very difficult. How do you do it? And... Um... It is not easy. I've done a few talks for church groups and Rotary Clubs here after I came. And I said, um, I tell them what the Camino is about um, you know, for the last thousand years or so. Uh, pilgrims have been going to Santiago. And I say, if you define a pilgrimage, there's a nice definition I got from Simon Reeve, who's a BBC uh, travel person, travel writer. Uh, and he said, a pilgrimage is a secular journey to sacred places. I said, for some people, that's a way of looking at it. For others, it's a journey uh, to a sacred destination. And as you said, there are some people for whom it's just a good excuse to get away from home and uh, uh, live and uh, travel in another country. But <clears throat> when I talk to people, I say, the Camino is different for everybody. And each person has their own Camino and everybody will come back with some benefit of having work. Maybe it's the uh, focusing of yourself on reaching this destination in uh, a period of time. Maybe it's what you learn from the other people because you meet a lot of other people who are on the same quest. And you find when you sit and talk to them, you learn so much from them. I used to ask people, what made you decide to walk the Camino? Yeah. And so you learn from them. You'll uh, imbibe some of their ideas. Um, again, um, as you asked, how do you explain to people the benefit? I read somewhere that the Camino starts when you reach Santiago because you, you have spent this six weeks alone. You're going back to the real world after that. But part of what you've experienced, part of what you've learned, part of what you've um, imbibed or uh, gained by spending time in maybe contemplation, all that will be reflected in your life afterwards. I you know my wife says that since I uh, came back, I've uh, been a little more easygoing than I used to be before. It's it's uh, it's as you said, it's, it's difficult to explain to those who haven't gone, but it's good to tell them this is what happens and maybe encourage people to go and. See for themselves. In in Buddhism, the Buddha used to always teach and, and he never said, this is how it should be. He'd always say, this is what I have experienced. And they say, ehe pasko, go and see for yourself. Are you planning on walking it again, Sanjeeva? Not the Camino again. But my wife, uh, she met us at the end of the Camino in Lisbon and... Uh, I suggested that we don't do the whole Camino again, but let's do the first part from St. Jean over the Pyrenees, maybe to Pamplona. But what we did do since we came back is, we if there's a pilgrim trail in um, 
Japan. It's called the 88 Temples uh, Trail in the on the island of Shikoku. Yes, I've heard of this. That is uh, another a different kind of uh, pilgrimage. And we decided, my wife and I, to do that pilgrimage. So it's 1,200 kilometers. I don't think uh, we would do it in one journey. But we went and uh, last year in uh, April, cherry blossom time, we went and walked from Temple 1 to Temple 23. And the idea was, having finished at Temple 23, we spent a couple of days in a place called Hiwasa, overlooking the Pacific Ocean, that um, we'll go back and do another 20 temples, perhaps this day in autumn, and uh, try to finish walking the 88 temples, visiting each of the temples, um, sometime over over the next few years, because our daughter lives in Japan, and uh, she now speaks Japanese, so she came with us to the uh, a few of the temples too, as we started out, and that's a different experience, but also, again, it's a pilgrimage, and you meet people who are going to these different temples on a kind of quest. Uh, inside some of those uh, Buddhist temples, you can feel the same sense of peace that you might uh, feel in say Unate or those little um, churches. The other one that I distinctly remember was, um, yeah, I can't remember the name of the town now, but where we sat and listened to the chanting of the monks. And uh, that was again uh, lovely. Just sitting there in the evening and the monks walk in and you can close your eyes and it's, the chanting has a kind of magical quality about it. So going to the Japanese temple, is something that we are hoping to do over the next few years. Was that little temple, that little church in Rabanal del Camino? Yes, yes, that's yes. right. That is a Which special, is a... special evening, isn't it? Yes. That's really remarkable. And it's run by, the, the, the albergue is run by an English confraternity. Yes. And I remember going there and uh, we walked in there at about three o'clock and then at four we were invited to sit and have a very proper English tea with the biscuits yeah. and uh, yeah. <laughs> it was lovely. It was lovely. I stayed there too. Uh, Guelcalmo, I think, is the name of the albergue. In fact, uh, yes, I'm going to be, I hope to interview next week one of the hospitaleros from that very uh, albergue. Yeah. So let's go back to the Camino. What would you have left behind before yeah. you, what could you have left back in Australia, do you think? Okay, what I did post back was <laughs> I took a pair of, uh, I wore my boots and I had a pair of uh, slippers, what in Australia would be called thongs, and I had a pair of uh, old shoes. And um, when we packed in uh, St. John, we stayed an extra night in St. John just to acclimatize ourselves and get over jet lag. And when we set off on St. John, I packed everything. I wore my boots and I hung my shoes. I tied the shoelaces together and hung it from my backpack. And we were walking out of St. John and my son said, Tati, you can't walk with shoes hanging from your backpack <laughs> looking like a tramp. And I thought uh, he had a point there. So I left the shoes behind um, in a bin in outside St. John Periport. And so I only had the pair of thongs and the boots on the journey. Yeah. Okay, that lightened my road by maybe a kilogram. Uh, I took along, one of my friends gave me one of those little electronic things that uh, you type in, hello, how are you? And then in about five different languages, you can get the equivalent of hello, how are you? Coming 
put on the screen. Yes, yes. So that might be useful. You know, you've seen those things, no? Yes. But then I thought, no, I don't need that really because on the Camino, a lot of Europeans speak more than one language. And as long as you make an effort to start talking and you can get away with hand gestures and the person next to you will help to translate if needed. So um, I realized I didn't need that. So I sent that back. Uh, Shivanda sent the book he was reading back. And uh, yeah, but again, because I'd read and uh, uh, I'd read books of other people who'd walked the Camino, uh, so I knew what would be essential. And so the amount I had to post back was less than what a lot of people who hadn't read and prepared uh, had to post back. And what could you, what did you wish you had taken with you? Ah. Nothing really, because I had a, uh, a book to write my journal stuff. Um, I had a small mobile phone, which uh, Shivanta says, Tati, that must have been one of the first mobile phones invented. It's one of those little <laughs> things. <laughs> it fits in the palm of your hand, and it only makes phone calls, nothing else. But uh, that was useful. Uh, so I, I didn't use it really, but we had it just in case. Uh, Shivanta had his uh, laptop. And I think he'd given the opportunity, even if he had to go again, he'd take maybe a, an iPad or something. Because for his generation, it's important to be contactable and to contact people away from uh, the community. But I didn't really need to talk to people. We spoke to my wife on uh, several occasions um, and to our daughter. But other than that, I, I sort of stepped away from the world. I didn't bother about what was happening in the news in America or anywhere. At, in most of the Spanish places, we stopped. If there was a TV on, it was tuned to Spanish football. And yeah. uh, what had happened in the world in the six weeks that I was away on the Camino, I realized it didn't really matter what uh, was happening, whether the what was happening in the political world. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. So, at, at, at the best of times, in my view. So any... Sanjeeva, advice for someone considering walking? Right. Prepare. If I can say just one word, prepare. Uh, read as much as you can about it. Um, the, you get on the internet um, a few sites that are helpful. Um, but I think because I still belong to the generation that prefers books held in my hand paper books rather than reading on the internet but for those who are comfortable with the internet certainly look up uh, on the internet or read uh, yeah uh, kindle books and things but read what other people have done because you can learn from their mistakes instead of making the mistakes that uh, learning from your own mistakes which will be uh, a problem pack and you realize you don't really need things. Now, I took along a razor, but I realized I didn't need the razor. So at the yeah. end of the Camino, I had a good beard. Yes. Uh, and even that little razor that I jettisoned, uh, you find that uh, 10 grams plus 10 grams plus 10 grams ultimately leads you to about 3 kilograms, which you don't really need. And every kilogram you have to carry on your back to Santiago. Uh, walk before you go and develop your blisters and let them heal before you leave your hometown. Because there's nothing worse than uh, developing blisters in the new pair of boots that you're uh, trying out for the first time, walking over the Pyrenees. Uh, yeah. Are you ever too old, Sanjeeva, to walk the Camino? No. 
because uh, I, as I, you know, from my book, uh, I was double my son's age and we met uh, uh, a man who was uh, close to 80. He was working with his son-in-law uh, on the Camino. He'd done the Camino about four times previously uh, and he was working. He was close to 80. The principle is that anybody can complete the Camino. As our Canadian friend Greg said, it's just like walking the block. Take one step at a time, walk slowly if you need to, it's not a race, and uh, you will get there in the end. If you find that you're uh, too slow, uh, sorry, if you find that the journey is difficult, you rest, and then walk from there onwards. Of course, if you have certain medical conditions that might preclude you going on the Camino, that's something you have to accept. Yeah. If you yeah. have... Um, medical conditions that are controllable, like say high blood pressure, for example, diabetes, um, even people who have angina, as long as the angina is stable, take your medications. I um, told people if you're going, ask your GP. In Australia, there's a great thing in general practice where your GP can give you what's called a GP management plan that sets out your medications, your medical conditions. Always carry that with you and carry your medications with you so that in the unlikely event of you having to go to hospital, you got everything written out, which you can give to the doctors there and they can help you. But uh, taking your medications uh, and taking them at the correct time is fine. I met a few people who are diabetic on the trail and they just took their insulin, ate at the correct times and didn't have uh, any ma major problems. When I met you earlier this year, Sanjeeva, I was struck by how fit and agile you were. And I and I and I, I mean this in both a physical sense and almost a spiritual sense. I, I I thought when I when I spoke to you and and heard your presentation, here's a here's a bloke who's found himself in life's journey. Would that be fair assessment? Thank you for the compliment about the physical fitness. Um, <laughs> I guess because I've lived in so many different countries, no. I was born in Sri Lanka, lived in Sri Lanka for the early part of my life, then uh, went to the UK for uh, postgraduate studies, both my wife and I, then came back to Sri Lanka, then went to Hong Kong, worked there for five years, then uh, from there we came to Australia. So I, I've had to learn to live and adapt in different societies and different cultures. And that, I suppose, explains why I try to, um, I'll say, not fit in, but try to communicate in a way that the people who I'm talking to can understand what I'm saying. I always tell the students, communication is not what you tell people. It's what they understand you to have said. And so um, learning to speak or training yourself to speak in such a way that you get your message uh, across to people in language that they understand, analogies, examples that uh, resonate with them. I think that's something that I've learned to pick up over the years. It's some, yeah, I, I, I've got written here, it's a great relief, I'm sure, to now have this bond with your son. Your, oh, yeah. your pilgrims walking side by side, and from time to time, you as a father are there to carry him, and perhaps he can carry you, and much as in life. This is true, this is true. When uh, there was a Spanish father and a son who we met when Shivanta was, uh, um, we were going to... Uh, Zubiri and we were going to this uh, uh, albergue and I had my pack and Shivanda picked up my pack from the road and uh, 
um, walk to the Alberghi. And there's this little uh, boy who's walking with his father. And um, he, he spoke to us and then um, he said, and he was scanning his son's pack. So we laughed and he said, I hope when my son is older that he will be able to carry uh, my pack as I'm carrying his pack now. And that's true. Nice uh, fathers and sons, we do things for our children. And if we have a good relationship with them, when we get older and we need their help, they'll be able to look after us. It's also something else I learned that uh, on the community, like the third time, it took three requests from Shivanta to carry my pack, two requests and one command. <laughs> and it was accepted. Realizing that, you know, I'm not as young as he is. He is fit. He's offering to carry my pack. Accept it and be a grateful acceptor of his kindness to me. Learning to be a grateful acceptor also is something that I think as human beings we need to learn. We often reject offers of help because it affects our pride. I think it's a wonderful story, Sanjeeva. It's a wonderful legacy. The bond that you have formed with your son, uh, the book, Thank you. and and your generosity today in, in spending an hour sharing with me and my listeners your journey, your, your pilgrimage. Congratulations and thank you for your time. Thank you, Dan, and thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking with you. And uh, I hope that uh, some of the things that I've, we've discussed will be useful to others who contemplate going on this journey. Thanks a lot, Dan. It was a great pleasure for me. Thank you, Sanjeeva. Dr. Sanjeeva Vijay Singer there, a Melbourne GP. He wrote an account of his Camino alongside his son called Strangers on the Camino, A Father, a Son and a Holy Trail. It's available on Amazon, Goodreads and there's a Facebook page as well. Just search for Strangers on the Camino and you can get the book via Facebook. That's all we have time for this week. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Sanjeeva as much as I did. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins, Buen Camino. Camino.